The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So let's look. And uh, we are going to back up and, and just survey real quickly Gen- Genesis chapter 10. Uh, which I've titled, God's Plan for Great Diversity. And in this genealogy, uh, it breaks down the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And it breaks down their descendants, uh, kind of along those family lines. And interestingly, each family line ends with this phrase. These are the descendants of, of blank, identified by clan, language, territory, and national identity. Okay? And that kind of summarizes each of their descendants. Now let me give you real quick the breakdown on their on their uh, this descendants. First you get Japheth, who is the middle child, and his descendants get all of three verses, verses 2, 3, and 4. Okay? When you compare it to the weight of the other two genealogies, his genealogy is very short and small, and it would be easy to assume that he doesn't have a lot of kids, but the author is not really interested in detailing all the nations of the world. In fact, if you count all the children and grandchildren, all the descendants of Noah, he lists 70 of them. And the scripture 70 is a significant number, and it's symbolic, okay? The author is not naming every tribe and language and people group at the time he wrote. He's being very selective, and he gives Japheth very little attention because the tribes of Japheth actually have the least to do with Israel. They're the tribes that live farthest away and that were least involved with the nation of Israel, that they least had contact with or awareness of. So they get very little mention other than, yep, he had kids and they had kids and they turned into nations, period. Okay, moving on. Ham. Ham actually gets 14 verses, almost three times as many verses. Uh, Actually, more than three times, almost four times. I don't know, I can't do the math. I'll let you figure that out. A lot more verses, right? Uh, Who are the descendants of, of Ham? Well, these are a lot more familiar names. People like Egypt, Canaan. Uh, Cush, names that are frequently repeated in the Old Testament because these are people groups that Israel had a lot of dealings with. And this group of nations were uh, nations that were mostly characterized as enemies of Israel or uh, nations that Israel had difficult dealings with, like the Egyptians, the Canaanites. Under the Canaanites, uh, it lists all these, you know, the Flebites, Hippites, you know, all these people, the Ites, right? that the nations of Israel dealt with in the land of Canaan when they went into the Promised Land, right? So they get a lot more attention because they are a lot more focused um, and a lot more uh, a part of Israel's history. Interestingly, in this section, uh, we get the account of a guy named Nimrod. And I really like this story. Actually, well, I don't know that I like this story, but it's personal. This story is personal to me about Nimrod because when I was in high school, I had a friend who used to mock me by calling me Nimrod. He thought it was very funny, and he thought you know, he, was, he was putting me down by calling me Nimrod. Sadly, he never read the Bible. Because when you read the story about Nimrod, it says, uh, Cush was also the ancestor of Nimrod, who was the first heroic warrior on earth. He didn't know he was actually complimenting me as a great man. Okay? His, uh, since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say, this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. Oh, yeah. 
he built his kingdom in the land of Babylonia with the cities of Babylon, Erek, Akkad, and Kalna. Uh, interesting detail about this guy and all these genealogies that it names and mentions Nimrod at all. Um, and Nimrod is identified as the first great man in history. Uh, that's, that's the significance of Nimrod. He was the first guy who really achieved a level of fame and status that made him kind of a, a great world leader, a renowned world person, right? Great hunter, very successful, famous, a city and nation builder. Uh, and not just any nation, but as we'll see, uh, the significance is in, in chapter 11, he is the founder of Babylon, of Babel. Right? So the city that we read about next in chapter 11 was founded and started by Nimrod. And so he is what the modern world typifies as a very successful guy. Okay? He is a guy who's reached the pinnacle of power and success, who's achieved wealth and status and fame. Right? Uh, he's, 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 he's really given, in fact he uses the word in the New Living, kind of heroic status. He's a hero of the day. Is he a hero in God's sight? Well, it's interesting, Nimrod finds himself in the center of this genealogy of all of Israel's enemies. Okay? The author is not here. Moses is not, and Scripture is not, is not venerating Nimrod. Okay? He is a negative example of what we are not supposed to be as human beings. Right? Dress. <laughs> I was on such a roll there for a moment. Uh, you know, he may have been the first guy to make the top, to you know, make Forbes 500 list, but he was not important to God. Okay, he was important in man, man's eyes. He's not on God's radar. In fact, we see in chapter 11, God makes a joke of the work of Nimrod's hands. Okay, so remember that when we get to chapter 11. Finally, the genealogies end with the genealogy of Shem. The most significant thing about Shem is it says that. Sons were born to Shem, the older brother of Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the de descendants of Eber. Okay, yay, let's hear it for Eber. You guys know who Eber was? Who was Eber? Were they the Eberites? Well, actually, in Hebrew, the word Eber, if you were to, to, to modify that to be the sons of Eber, it would be the Eberus, the Hebrews. Okay, so this is uh, the line of the Jews, the line of the Hebrews. And so Shem's line gets special focus as the peoples of, uh, you know, the focus of chapters 12 through 50. And most of that family are identified more, not always, but more so as Israel's allies. Uh, so what's the point of all this? Well, real briefly, uh, two things come out of chapter 10. One is that God really created humanity as one big happy family. And what we're supposed to take out of this is that all humans, all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all, all tongues, all cultures are very much related and connected. So we share this brotherhood of humanity. Uh, and even though Israel at times would have conflicts with certain groups and at certain times were allied with other groups, the emphasis of this passage of chapter 10 is that God sees them all as children of Noah. And as such, we are all together one big happy family. Maybe not always so happy, but certainly big and broad and diverse. And there is, God has compassion and love and concern for all of his children. So even though in chapters 12 through 50, God is going to choose Abraham and he's going to set apart the line of Abraham as his chosen people, it's not because he doesn't care about the rest of humanity. 
In fact, he tells Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through you. Sure, I'm going to bless you, but my blessing to you is to extend to all peoples everywhere. And so we see that, and that's the significance of chapter 10. The other thing that's important out of chapter 10 is really God's design for diversity. God desired that human beings would, would be of many kinds. All right? And it repeats this phrase over three times in the chapter. They were uh, each by clan or tribe, by language, by land or territory, and by nation, nation or national identity. Those are the things that make up culture. And God's intent and plan, as we see as it comes into chapter 10, it paints this successful picture of the world being inhabited and all over the face of the globe, all different kinds of people groups and languages and countries and nations, as God intended and planned. And God, it's God's heart and desire that although He is one God and, and there is one true faith, there is one true way to know Him, there is many ways and styles in which He is to be worshipped. And you look uh, throughout Scripture, it's very clear that God seeks the worship of all peoples of all tribes and all nations. That God's intention and plan was never that humanity be homogenous or one kind. God never intended for us to be all shaped and look and speak alike. Right? Uh, the question is, you know, when we get to heaven, is there going to be one language? Probably not, sadly. Uh, it's, we're probably going to still deal with this multi-language thing forever. The only thing is there, uh, you know, hopefully we can still understand each other. God's going to take the confusion away. Psalm 67 says this, May your ways be known throughout the earth, O God, your saving power among peoples everywhere. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may all the nations praise you. Let the whole world sing for joy because you govern the nations with justice and guide the people of the whole world. So you got this picture of God loving people everywhere. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may all the nations praise you. And I think we could add from chapter 10, may they praise you in their own language, in their own tongue, in their own culture. Okay. So as we seek to bring Christ to the nations, the goal is not to make them all worship God the same way. Each culture has its own unique perspective and way of relating to and highlighting the attributes and character of God. So that's really the picture of chapter 10. And, um, and in many ways, it would be a much smoother transition to go from chapter 10 into chapter 12. That this world is this big happy family and God calls uh, Abram out of this big happy family to bless all these wonderful nations, right? But, but, but the author, much like the story of Noah, doesn't want to end on too happy a note. Same way here. Okay, there's this repeated theme that God's doing good things and He's blessing the world, but from Genesis 1-11, through 11, it always has to end on a sour note. It always has to end with us coming back to this reality. The intentions of man's heart are evil from childhood. Okay? It's important that we don't lose that. God's doing one thing, but man is yet another thing. right? So, uh, we come to chapter 11, and we see this illustrated. And it says, At one time all the people of the world spoke the same language, and the people migrated to the east, and they found a plain, and they settled there, and they began saying to each other, Let's make bricks. And I want to show you uh, from this passage four things. And as we look at this, uh, it, it would be easy to misrepresent and misjudge what's happening here. And it would be easy to say that God is like anti-progress. He's anti-man doing anything. 
He's anti-cities. He's anti-technology. Okay, it's important to see that what God is 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 watching is the intentions of their heart. Okay, why are they doing what they're doing? Okay, what is motivating and driving their ambition on the plane? Well, they they state quite clearly their purpose. They have thought out a purpose statement, and their purpose statement is this. Our purpose is to settle, be comfortable, and make a name for ourselves. Okay, that's the goal. That's their purpose statement, their mission statement. Right? Their goal is self-centered. Their goal is to live life apart from and separate from God. Okay? And it's that intention that God is concerned about and that the author scrutinizes and is critical of. So let's see the, the ways that they were self-driven and really out for self-glory. So there's basically four things. First, they were self-willed. Okay, they had a self-willed purpose. Okay, what did God tell them to do? What did God instruct Noah to do when he got off the ark? He said, multiply, go multiply and fill the earth. Okay? Meaning, you're to go to all the corners of the globe and fill it. Right? I want people everywhere. I want people worshiping me from every corner of the earth. Right? So several generations later, what do you see? Well, here they are, all gathered on the plain of Shinar, the, uh, the Hebrew says. And um, it's the site of modern day, uh, near uh, Baghdad, actually. South of Baghdad is the, the archaeological site of Babylon. is where they landed up. It's a big, huge, flat plain. And they said, we want to settle here. Okay? So their purpose is, is no longer to do what God had instructed them to do. Uh, God did not... This was not God's design or call or purpose for them to congregate all in one place. He wanted to spread out. It's like people, this joke, a friend of mine would tell me often, he said, preachers are like manure. You know, they're only of value when they get spread out. Okay. You think about that one. So this is kind of the same way with people, I guess. People are like manure. They only have value if they're spread out. No good if they're all clumped together. And that's what they were doing. They were clumping together. Um, it was their own purpose. It was their own motive. And their motive in it, as I said, was to, to exalt themselves, to make a name for themselves. They wanted fame and glory for themselves. Uh, they wanted to make a name for themselves, which in essence means they wanted to be remembered forever and achieve glory and, and fame. Right? Uh, in other words, they wanted to lift themselves up uh, high above the earth, right? to exalt themselves so their intention was filled with pride and self-seeking glory. Okay, that's the nature of humanity, isn't it? That's one of the intentions of our heart that is true of every single human being. Okay? It would be really easy to just say, man, those wicked people on the plain of Babylon. But the reality is what God is talking about here is the nature of human beings. Okay? All of us are inherently like this. It is our natural-born purpose and intent to do what? to exalt ourselves, to lift ourselves up, to make a name for ourselves, to be great and famous. Right? So that was their first uh, impure motive. Secondly, they, uh, they had this great self-made ingenuity. And again, God is not necessarily criticizing ingenuity, but he doesn't like the self-made part of it. Okay? It says, I love this, it says, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. They discovered the ingenious ability of making bricks. Now, uh, the New Living sadly translates it. Uh, it says that 
that in this region bricks were used instead of stone, making, it kind of makes it sound like no stones were available. Okay, the truth is, the world is a big rock. Okay, pretty much anywhere you go in the world, there's rock. Okay, it's what the earth is made out of. Okay, the plain of Babylon had just as much rock as anywhere else. Okay, they didn't choose brick over rock because they couldn't find rocks. Okay, that's not the issue. Why did they choose brick? Well, here's the deal. Brick is very easily controlled and manipulated. Okay? When, uh, when the Egyptians built their pyramids out of stone, how big were the stones? Well, they said some of these stones were like five tons. Okay? They're massive, huge rocks. And if you build things with stones, it, t it requires size. Okay? Nobody, you know, most bricks are about, or smaller than a bread loaf. Most bricks are made that you can put in your hand, right? Because it's easy to haul. It's easy to manipulate. I can make the bricks any size I want. I can shape them. I can control them. Okay, rock doesn't work that way. Rocks start big, and if you want to make them small, that's a lot of work, right? And it only gets so small when it becomes impractical. Okay, their goal is to make a big city and to make it a tower up to heaven, Okay. There's a practical and logistical problem. If you want to make a tower three or four or five hundred feet high, which, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar II uh, built a tower on the exact same, most likely on this exact site, and he built a tower some three hundred feet high. Uh, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar II says about it. He said, "A former king built the temple of the seven lights of earth on this spot, but he did not complete its head. Since a remote time, people had abandoned it." without order expressing their words. Interesting. Since that time, earthquakes and lightning had dispersed its sun-dried clay and the bricks, uh, the bricks of the casing had split and the earth of the interior had been scattered in heaps. So Babylon built, uh, Nebuchadnezzar built another tower, which the remains of are still exist today. You can go visit it. 300 feet high. Okay, so imagine they're building a tower 300 feet high. How do you get a two-ton rock 300 feet in the air? It's tough, okay? It would be tough with modern-day equipment. All right? But bricks are much less limiting, okay? And in their ingenuity, they'd figured this out. Bricks and tar could go a lot higher than rock, all right? So they were quite ingenious and quite inventive, but uh, the, the text here is implying kind of the silliness of brick, okay? Why use brick when you could use rock? Which is going to last longer? Bricks or stone? Well, stone lasts much, much longer. Much longer. Uh, if you want something to really last, God has provided a building material that's much sturdier. Okay? God's given them rock. But man has abandoned God's resources for sake of his own ingenuity. <clears throat> okay? His self-made ingenuity. Man saying, look, God, we got a better way. Okay, your way is too much work, and it's too hard, and your way limits us. We can go to the, the sky's the limit with our method, right? We can go to the we can go to heaven with our own ingenuity and cleverness, right? Is God impressed with man's cleverness? Well, not so much. Um, so that's the second thing, self. Uh, self-made ingenuity. Thirdly, selfish interest. He says, okay, they got this brick factory going. They're building bricks. They're cranking out bricks. And they said, okay, now we got lots of bricks. Let's make, a, let's make a great city and a tower that reaches to the sky. 
great city and tower that reaches to the sky. Um, why did they want to build this city? Why was it they were so resistant to God spreading out all over the place? Well, cities are much more comfortable than farms. Right? That's why to this day, and throughout history, man has always been trying to get himself collected in cities. Cities are easier to fortify. They're easier to defend. You can build high walls and you can have armies. You can build moats. Right? Uh, cities are much easier. You know, Cities have grocery stores. Cities have big C and lotus, right? So I don't have to go out and grow my crops and hope it rains and pull weeds. Okay, I don't have to do this whole battling the thorns thing. I just go to lotus. Okay, I, you know, there's some real advantages to cities. Cities have movie theaters, and life is easy in the city. You see, they wanted to settle down where it was much more comfortable and easy. If you've read anything about pioneers and discoverers, it's risky business, you know. When you go in and pioneer and explore a new territory, people die all the time. And they get diseases and they get attacked and they can't defend themselves. Okay, So what they're after here is they're after very selfishly their own comfort and safety. All right? Now, of course, is, is it wrong to want comfort and safety? No. But again, it's, it's self-made. Okay? And the whole point of this is that they were doing all this in a way that Cut God completely out of the picture. Okay, look, if we have a big enough city, we have a tower to the heavens, we don't need God. We can do it ourselves. Right? We can take care of ourselves. We can live in such a way that we will never again have to be dependent on the God of creation. See, that's what this is about. So they want to settle down. They want to be comfortable. They want life to be easy. And most significantly, they want life without God. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound at all like, like has man changed any in the last 4,000 years? Not much. Okay. Uh, like their hero Nimrod, okay, the founder of the city. They wanted greatness. They wanted success. They wanted to do it their own way without God's help. Well, finally, their self-exalting conceit. They had this brilliant idea that they could make a tower that would touch heaven. Okay. Now, of course, we look at this and we just kind of laugh, and our scientific brains go, well, you know, how, how high could they get? Well, I don't know how it worked and what they were thinking, but the point is they had this notion that they could build something so great and so significant that it would, it would note worthiness of the gods. Okay. I don't know if they really literally believed they could get high enough that they could get up right where the gods live, but that's kind of the idea. That through their own effort, they could merit equality with the gods. Right? So in other words, this tower would put them in the same neighborhood as the gods. So like you know, when they go out in the afternoon to water their lawn or mow their grass, well, I'll look right across the hedge, it's God. Hey God! Right? That's kind of the idea. We live in the same neighborhood as God. Go, go down to the corner pub and who's there? The gods. Because we, we live in their neighborhood. And we are equal with the gods. Because we are so clever and so bright and so inventive and we can do such great things, you know, we're just right up there with the gods. And it's a reflection of the fact that they had made the gods in their image. Okay? They had brought the, the high and mighty, almighty creator God down to a being who is very much human and like them. And therefore it was easy for them to imagine they could come up to that level and be really on the same level with the gods. 
So they thought they could build a tower. Uh, it really is the heart of all man-made religion. It's this notion that by our own effort and by our own work, we can reach God, right? Okay, if we work hard enough, if I try hard enough, through my own ability, I can actually reach God. Not because I want God, but because I want to be like Him. Okay, they didn't want, they didn't want to reach heaven so that they could have communion and fellowship with God. Okay, that was not their intent. Their idea is that we could be as powerful as God and we don't need Him anymore. We could be like the gods. And we won't need God's help anymore because we could be so mighty and powerful we can govern our own lives without Him. That's what man-made religion is about. I can work my way up to be like God and I don't need communion or fellowship with Him. I can be on a plane with Him. It's, proud, it's pride at its, at its worst. And in many senses, this story reflects Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, they saw the fruit. They saw that it would do what? It would make them like God. And in pride, they thought, I want to be equal with God. Not in relationship with God. I want to be like Him. So that's their plan. And that's what they set out to do. <clears throat> well, then in verse 5, it says that, uh, that God has His own plans. And God, God is very good at being successful in His plans, isn't He? Uh, God comes down to earth, and I love this picture. It says, it says in verse 5, it says, uh, it says, But the Lord came down, way down. Okay, the Lord came way down to look at the city. Okay, get the picture here. They are so proud. They're building this tower. they got this impressive city. They're trying to do what? Make a name for themselves. They're trying to impress the gods, right? Well, the true and living God is so far high and above everything. Okay, this is the picture. It's not that God obviously doesn't know what's going on, that he can't see. But the picture is a symbol or an image of this God who's so far high above what they are doing that he looks down and it's just dust. So he's got to come down much farther. He's got to get on the elevator and go down gazillion, bazillion floors to earth and get out to inspect and get a closer look at this puny, insignificant work of man. Right? So that's what he does. God comes down. He leaves heaven, the true heaven, to take a close look at this piddly, insignificant trifling of man. And so he looks at it and he says, look, the people are united. They're speaking one language. If they can do this, there's nothing that they purpose that will be impossible for them. Now, while God has to come way down to look at it because it's not to him impressive, uh, he does see stuff going on here that concerns him a lot. And he said, you know, man is able to accomplish great things. Uh, man is gifted. He is talented. He, is in, he has ingenuity. Uh, when he works together with other human beings, really there's nothing uh, in his own devices that man can't accomplish. Now, why was that a problem? Well, again, it's not that God is against man advancing himself. Okay? It's not that God is against technology. It's definitely not against, uh, that God is against man working together. Okay? Like Jesus came to reconcile us to each other. Right? Uh, God calls us to unity. What was the problem here? Well, this is the problem. God saw that what man was doing would be extremely successful, so much so that man would come to a place, in fact already had, where they 
didn't feel any need for God. Okay, that's what this is about. That human beings were so successful pulling together that they had eliminated God from the formula. All right? So that from that point forward, they would live contentedly without seeking God, without looking for God, without knowing God, without ever having to trust in God. And so God comes down and, and He, in his, uh, his gracious, merciful judgment, will not let man go that way. Okay? It is much like uh, with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve had the possibility after they had sinned by eating the apple, the apple, eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of eating the fruit of, from the tree of life. And God banned them from it because for them to have eternal life in that condition would be a very bad thing. Same thing here. For them to have this kind of success in that condition would be a very bad thing. All right? To have that kind of successfulness without God. And God in His mercy says, this cannot go on. We've got to put a stop to this. And so He says, it says that He, um, in verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other. God's plan is pretty simple. He just uh, confuses uh, their language. Uh, New Living kind of implies that he gave them all different languages. It, and, and a lot of times we have that assumption that when God, what God did at Babel is he replaced their spoken tongue with a different tongue. And so at Babel, God created all these different languages. Actually, the Bible doesn't say that. What it says is that God confused their language. In other words, He poured out a spirit of confusion among them so they couldn't understand each other. And because of that, they scattered across the earth. And as they scattered and went to different places, their languages evolved and developed separately. I don't know that God necessarily zapped everybody on that day with a different language. It probably doesn't matter. The The end result is the same. He disrupted their work. Uh, he turned it all upside down, and the God of creation had his own plan, and he was going to make sure his plan was carried out. And his plan was that there would be many diverse peoples and languages all, all across the earth. Uh, and so he, had, he, in his merciful judgment, scatters them. Okay, he scatters them. And in the end, uh, I love this ending, this conclusion of the of what God does. It says, In that way the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped, they stopped building the city. And that's why the city today is called Babel. Because this is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. Can you understand something about Babel or Babylon? In, uh, as the Israelites were about to enter the Promised Land, okay, as they come out of Egypt, the two great centers of power in the world were Egypt and Babylon. Okay? If you wanted to talk about a great and famous city, you would stand in awe of the cities of the pharaohs and Babylon. And throughout the rest of Israel's history, Babylon would stand as this great tower of fame and success. But God says, here, let me tell you a joke. Let me tell you about great Babylon. It really means confusion. And it is nothing more than a monument to the foolishness of man's pride. Okay? They abandoned the city, and of course others later came along, and and Nebuchadnezzar and others rebuilt it. But God said, it's a joke. From my perspective where I sit, 
The great achievements of man are just a joke. Okay, they're just a joke. I can confuse, I can, I can put an end to it uh, by a simple little thing like, uh, like confuse, confusing their speech. Um, so what is this passage all about? Let me, let me summarize and uh, apply it this way. Uh, this story really emphasizes that we serve the God who comes down. Uh, and if you look uh, you know, at this story, it wants to emphasize two things. First of all, it emphasizes that God is high, high, high above heaven and earth. Okay? God is not like us. And in theological terms, we use the term transcendent. And it means God is high above us. He is not anything like us. And this picture is of God high above heavens looking down on the schemes of man and just kind of shaking his head and going, you know, I'm sovereign over all this. I will accomplish my purpose and goal. Uh, but God is not only a God of heaven who abides high up in the clouds. He is also a God who comes down. And I have up here on the screen the, the basic structure or outline of this passage. And much like the flood story, it's written as a... In parallel phrases. So, in other words, verses 2 and verse 8 match. So, the people journey to the plain. In verse 8, we see that God scatters them out over the earth. So, they come, God sends them away. In verses 3 and 7, it match. It says, they mix up bricks. In the Hebrew, literally, it says, they mix up bricks. Verse 7, he mixes up their language. Uh, verses 4 and 6 are, are matched. They build a city and a tower. Verse 6, God comes and examines the city, and he looks at the city and the tower. And the center of it is verse 5. And the center of it is this, God comes down. God comes down. Uh, and, you know, we see what God does here as he comes down. On the one hand, being uh, his coming down to judge. But the truth is, God's coming down is really a matter of grace. Okay? And it's seen throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. God comes down to Abraham. God comes down to meet Israel. God comes down to visit David. Okay? We have this God, who, even though he's transcendent high above the heavens, we have this God who is continually coming down to us. Okay? It's powerful. Uh, we don't have a God who is distant and detached. Even for this crazy mixed up people on the plain, who were, whose every intention of their heart was evil, God is still concerned about these people. And he's not going to let them ruin themselves forever. He comes down and he intervenes by his grace. And he scatters them where they have to trust in him again. Where they have to depend on him. Uh, the God who comes down. Uh, ultimately, that picture is seen most perfectly in Jesus. You know, Jesus came down to earth. He left heaven and he came down to earth. And not just coming down to earth, but really, uh, Philippians says, he took on the form of a slave. He lowered himself. Jesus went down to the cross. Jesus went down to the grave. And this God who's high above the highest heights is going down, 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 down. He comes down to meet us he comes down to serve us. He comes down ultimately to save us. Uh, 
uh, it's interesting. Mankind is ever striving to move up and to make himself great. God is ever moving down to show and reveal himself to us and in humility to give himself to us. So how do we apply that? How do we apply all these interesting things from Genesis chapter 11? Well, I think it's good that we have a heart check and that we ask ourselves some key questions. Um, You know, the crime of the people was not in their doing, but in their motives, okay? Uh, So we need to ask ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? What is our life about? And the first question is that, uh, are we living before God in absolute humility? You know, are we... Because it, na- it is not our nature, okay? This story tells us it is our nature to want to make a name for ourselves, to want to elevate ourselves. God says, if you want to know me, you know, if you want to reach heaven, it's not by going up, it's by going down. Right? Bowing our lives before God in humility. Okay, that's how we will know God. God said he hates the proud, but he loves the humble. Right? So are we seeking a name for ourselves? Are we striving to make ourselves somebody, to be significant, to impress others, to impress God? Or are we people who are bowed in humility, bowing our life and our will before God? A good place to check our position before God. Uh, Are we humble before Him? Secondly, are we seeking His plan and His purpose? Are we living really in obedience to what He has called us to? Uh, This all happened because they weren't following God's orders. God gave them clear marching orders. And that was to march away from each other. And instead they all end up all clumped together like manure. Did you get that joke yet? Maybe it's too bad. I'll explain. I'll draw a picture. Um, are we seeking His purpose and plan? Uh, we need to examine daily our life. And I think a good question to ask ourselves, every, uh, throughout the day, okay, whatever we're doing, ask ourselves, are we doing what God has called us to do according to His purpose and His plan? Or am I doing what I have purpose to do? Okay, this is what Christians do. Now, we know people in the world do this. This is the Christian version of this. The Christian version is, I've got this great plan, I've got this great purpose, and if I pray at the end, it makes it God's purpose, right? Right? Like, you know, they, they build the city and then they have a ceremony to bless it to God. And assume that, therefore, because I prayed, God blesses it. It doesn't work that way. Okay? And, you know, I think it's good, the book's like Purpose Driven Life, and it's good to have purpose statements. You know, we, we are very purpose-motivated, driven people. The question is, whose purpose is it? If our purpose-driven life is, is merely our purpose, you're, we're missing the point. We're missing it altogether. It is to be God's purpose. Uh, we, ha- we must have a clear calling that what we are doing, we're doing because God called us to it. Okay, should, that should be true of everything in our life, every detail of our life. We should be doing it because of a clear sense that God has called us to it. We should also be asking, uh, if we pass that one, okay, yeah, what I'm doing is clearly God's purpose. 
By the way, here's how you know if it's God's purpose. If it's God's purpose, it will be tied back to Scripture. Okay, you'll be able to tie what you're doing back to God's commands and instructions in Scripture. All right. Secondly, okay, we've done that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a purpose-driven life and my purpose comes from God. Next question, am I doing it by my own devices or by His provision? A lot of, a lot of times it's very easy for us to accomplish God's purpose by making bricks instead of using stones, right? By doing it by our own ingenuity instead of by the resources and things God has handed to us for that purpose, right? Uh, Thirdly, am I seeking to accomplish God's purpose for the sake of His name or for my own glory? Okay, the, the reality is in the Christian world, you can make a great name for yourself doing God's purpose, okay? You can become very famous and make yourself great, and you can do it all out of pride in the name of Jesus. Okay? We, it's very easy to use Jesus to make ourselves look good. Right? Am I doing it for my own glory? Am I doing it to make myself look good? Or am I doing God's purpose ultimately for His glory? And lastly, am I doing all of this trusting God to provide and protect me? Uh, or am I just trying to do it so I can be comfortable? Okay? Um, God calls us to examine our hearts. And if God were to come down as He does, God comes down, if He looks at the city you are building, He looks at the work you are about, as He evaluates your life, what does He see? Does He see a work that you are doing for your own glory, to make a name for yourself, to make yourself comfortable? Or does He truly see a work of people whose lives are yielded and bowed before Him, seeking His purpose and His glory. Let's pray. Father, we know that You do come down in grace to show Your kindness, to meet with us. Uh, You also come down and You examine the work of our life. And Lord, we want to be building things that last for eternity. But Lord, we know that anything we do in our own foolishness and weakness, in our own strength, uh, is simply towers made of brick that will crumble and fall, that will come to nothing. Lord, we don't want to waste our time. We want to be people who are building something eternal because it is something you have called us and purposed us to do. And it will stand through all eternity because it brings glory to your name. Lord, all of us in here are doing something every day. And Lord, what we do can count for eternity or can be just a monument to our own foolishness. Lord, may we examine our lives so that all we do would be to your glory. Even though we are weak, you use us. Lord, we thank you for that, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.